you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What is good, everybody? Your host, Aaron Fifield here, and welcome to episode 181. This episode features a special guest, high-profile American businessman, Robert Greifield. Bob served as the CEO of financial exchange NASDAQ from 2003 to 2017. He came into this role when NASDAQ was facing an internal crisis. He was tasked with turning it around and making transformational change. Throughout this episode, Bob tells of critical moments and drastic actions, insight to NASDAQ's many acquisitions and its business model, plus lessons in leadership and career advice. One thing I'll point out, which is quite interesting, is about halfway through, Bob briefly speaks about meeting a group of traders who were doing a lot of trading in Staten Island. What he's referring to there is a firm called Daytech Securities, who became infamously known as the Soze Bandits. If you're not familiar with their story, go and look it up because it's really fascinating. Otherwise, Bob has written a book in which he dedicates a full chapter to their story and the reasoning for why he became a buyer of their technology. The title of the book is Market Mover and it covers Bob's entire experience as the big chief at NASDAQ. If you like, you can get yourself a copy of Market Mover at chatwithtraders.com slash marketmover. That link will, of course, redirect you straight to Amazon. Having since stepped down from NASDAQ CEO, Bob is today the managing partner of Cornerstone Investment Capital, which is a fintech investment firm, and he's also the chairman of Virtue Financial, which is a prominent trading and technology firm. By the way, if you would like to hear an interview with the co-founder of Virtue, Doug Sifu, go back and listen to episode 122. It's a good episode. Now, I can appreciate this conversation here with Bob won't be of interest to everybody. It's not exactly going to make you a better trader. But if you do have a deeper curiosity about financial markets, then you should enjoy hearing from a man who led one of the world's largest and widely known exchanges through numerous historical events. Plus, having done over 180 episodes now, it's nice to explore some new lines of conversation. Ladies and gents, I present to you Robert Greifield. Cool thing about doing the podcast is obviously get the opportunity to speak to a lot of really interesting people, you know, yourself included there. So, you know, Bob, the first thing I would like to ask you is having been a, a fintech entrepreneur yourself, what actually pulled you across to Wall Street? You know, that's a, that's a great question. And certainly when I was hired to be the CEO of NASDAQ, it was a uh, hire which was not kind of contemplated. It was somewhat out of left field. And, uh, and I'll get to direct answer to the question. So you have to recognize that NASDAQ at the time 
was trying to separate from the NASD, which was the regulator, which essentially owned NASDAQ. And as part of that process, they had attracted Hellman and Friedman, one of the leading venture capital firms, to invest uh, in the organization to give them the capital to try to transform the business and not take money from the regulator. And as a result, they had some Hellman people on the board, uh, most notably Warren Hellman, who was obviously the founder of the, uh, of the firm. And they had invested because they saw through, I'll call it the fog of the regulatory imprimatur uh, being an exchange, and they rightfully saw that it was a uh, technology company at its heart, you know, transaction processing company. So that allowed them to broaden the field of candidates to pull in somebody like myself to be considered. Now, where I wasn't that far off pace is that when I was a fintech entrepreneur, you know, it just wasn't a random piece of software we developed. It was trading systems for NASDAQ market makers, which we deployed on what then we call the service bureau basis. Now you'd call a SaaS uh, basis. So uh, I had spent, you know, the decade before sitting with NASDAQ market makers learning, you know, everything they did. And I said our trading system did everything but the magic of the trading decision itself in that it was uh, – it was a position keeping, order management system, regulatory system, all in real time, and then kind of a middle office layer that uh, tied into the back office uh, system. So my entrepreneurial days had specific, you know, IP knowledge relative to what NASDAQ was about. And I had to work with NASDAQ, the organization, and certainly had an outsider's view of the level of inefficiencies and problems. So, you know, the board had said, we have to get somebody who can teach us how to run as a for-profit entrepreneurial company that has a technology background because, you know, more than half the employees were going to be technologists there. But obviously knowing the space was probably important because we, you know, random technologists, the, you know, the industry knowledge is quite high. So that's how I came, came to be. So, uh, it was in a certain way thrust upon me because as I was a technologist, I was thinking, boy, I'd really like to get fully on the Wall Street side. And, you know, the story is that I had sold my company to Sony Road Data Systems in 1999, and it was my full intention to go back to my entrepreneurial roots like like you are doing. Uh, and SunGuard. I stayed there longer because it really was a wonderful experience for me because I did learn how to operate on scale uh, and, and operate on a global basis, of which I didn't really know how to do. And SunGuard also was a company that bought other software companies. So I learned the disciplines associated with uh, you know how to do a proper acquisition. Now, I'm not sure the, the scale of SunGuard and how many people uh, were a part of that company, but stepping into CEO of a company with like literally thousands of employees like NASDAQ has, you know, was that a bit of a shock to the system or did you have comparable experience with that? Yeah. Yeah. The SunGuard operation that I was responsible for on a pure headcount and revenue basis was significantly larger than NASDAQ, the business when I, I got there. Uh, so, that wasn't the issue. The learning curve uh, was one uh, dealing with Washington. Uh, that was completely outside of my uh, field of vision. You know, being a software entrepreneur. So Nasdaq was highly regulated by the the SEC, and in addition to that, you had the congressional oversight bodies which control the SEC budget. So you had to know the committee members in both the House Senate banking side and the House financial services uh, side. So that was uh, new for me. And then you had to, you know, understand the SEC structure, the five commissioners, you know, either three Democrats or three Republicans and two of the other party. And then the bureaucratic people who were in, you know, the direct regulatory part of that. So coming uh, from SunGuard and being an entrepreneur, that was new. Uh, the other thing that was new was the publicity associated with being 
the CEO of NASDAQ, right? I had been a below the radar uh, type of fellow. And, you know, it really came home to roost very early in that uh, I had first said I didn't want to essentially uh, consider the NASDAQ opportunity. And that was for two reasons. One is I had my heart set on doing another startup type of thing. And two is, uh, and I say this in the book, I realized how far gone they were, uh, more so than the average person in the public. So they had this glittering brand image, but the ECNs, uh, which were the competitive trading platforms that were formed after the development of Reg ATS, were just eating their lunch every day and taking more and more market share. And what I've always said to people, especially when you rise to a certain position, people want to imbue you with superpowers and I say, well, I don't have a magic wand here. So it felt like it was more of a magic wand scenario. And so then I hesitated. Then I get approached the second time, and I said, why not? Uh, let me do that. And then, like, two days later, my name's in the journal as one of the candidates. And I said, okay, this this is a different life then, uh, that, that, that kind of thing. So in terms of coming to NASDAQ, the skill sets were the – governmental side, the regulatory side, the publicity side. And then the other piece was the listings business, you know, where you as the CEO of NASDAQ had to be the person talking to the CEO of the company considering making the listing or who had already been listed for you. So that was a uh, responsibility that was very hard uh, to get, uh, delegate. CEOs had to talk to CEOs. And what I speak about in the book is that I've always been, you know, studied why do CEOs fail, right? Because the person who gets to be CEO one is uh, a typically a incredibly hard worker, right? You don't get there without working hard. And then you also don't get there by uh, not having core intellectual capability. So why do they fail? And I always came to the conclusion that they choose to work on the wrong thing. And that's probably the wrong way to say it. They choose to work on not the most right thing, right? Because there's a to-do list, and you everybody has this in life. You have a to-do list of 100 things. You can do 10 of them. You really only do three of them very well, and you have to be comfortable with focusing on the three of the five things that you can do very well and not be bothered by the others. So you know, I've seen many folks, and I've had the opportunity to talk to many CEOs more so than probably any person on the planet, you know, being in charge of NASDAQ. And it's really just working on the right thing and forgetting about the other things. So I thought that was, you know, fundamental. Absolutely. I noticed that um, going through your book is that you, you actually mentioned that a few times um, about the importance of using your time wisely and being able to leverage it in the right ways. And, and then I thought that is also something very interesting about you is as you just described there, in your role, you know, you've had the opportunity to meet some of the, really the very best entrepreneurs in the world. Um, you know, you've had encounters with um, Jeff Bezos, even Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, um, all those type, of, um, those type of people. One of the things before we go into some of these subjects a little further, I thought was, was quite interesting about the timing of when you came to be CEO of NASDAQ. So that was 2003. And it was just post, you know, a couple of years post the dot-com bust. What was the, what was the general, I don't know what the right word is, maybe the, the vibe at the time, you know, in the market? What was the sentiment like at the time? Well, I, I would say this. You know, the external sentiment was uh, probably worse than I realized. And it was interesting that, Literally, you know, two months or so after I came to NASDAQ, Business Week, which was a major publication back then, uh, you know, featured us on the front cover and covered NASDAQ in some great detail. And the headline on the cover of Business Week was NASDAQ in Crisis. And, uh, you know, to the outside world, so, you know, I came into NASDAQ knowing that I had fundamental issues in the transaction business, you know, running the day-to-day of the exchange. I knew, one, our technology was outdated, 
our technology was built like a battleship on mainframes where we'd have a release come out every year and we were, you know, less and less competitive every week. We had a series of ECNs that started up where they had, you know, relatively flimsy Unix systems that would fail more than the NASDAQ system would fail, but then people wouldn't care. They would just go back to trade to NASDAQ or another uh, ECN. So they kind of had a separate grading system that we had. And they would put a new release in every week. If the release didn't work, then they would roll it back and then try it again the next day. And NASDAQ is this big battleship. So I was focused on that, right? That's what the problem I came in to solve, right? What I wasn't focused on was the fact that in 2003, there were zero IPOs. We were living purely in the aftermath of the dot-com bust. The market was just dead, you know, uh, from that point of view. And so the business week people and the general business publication took it in that sense, right? They knew when NASDAQ was the high flying, when we we're doing four or 500 IPOs a year, now we're doing zero, uh, that, that, that kind of thing. So, you know, I went in there with a certain expectation of a crisis, realized that we had a different crisis with respect to, you know, the, the lack and the dearth of IPOs, which, you know, does, doesn't drive your economics of the moment, but clearly is an indicator of the long-term health of the business. Why do you believe that NASDAQ had fallen so behind uh, prior to 2003 before you came on board? Like, how had it, how had it lost a, com- its competitive edge in the market? Well, it never had to have a competitive edge, right? So the trading, uh, you know, before 2003, if you listed on NASDAQ, you did all your trading on NASDAQ. If you listed on NYSE, New York Stock Exchange, you did all your trading there. So you had NASDAQ with a great concept of bringing electronics to the marketplace, no physical trading floor. And the company was built around that. And, you know, it was to their great credit, they changed the world, right? Because, you know, every physical trading floor disappeared over the ensuing decades. And NASDAQ was the first to do it. Well, they did it in the construct of being part of the regulator, and they did it in the construct where they had no competition. So what happened was the rules changed, right? Hard stop, the rules changed. And some of the backstory is NASDAQ said, and NASD said that, hey, you know, we will, you know, we should spin NASDAQ off, let it be its own thing, and eventually, you know, go for profit in public like exchanges had done in Europe. And congressional oversight said, well, that's not, Maybe a good concept, maybe it's not bad, but we can't let you do it without having competition. So then the competition rules were put in place called Reg ATS. Competition sprung up quicker than anybody could have responded. And NASDAQ proper didn't have the muscle, right? The memory, the muscle to say, okay, I got a competitor. Now I have to respond. It just wasn't there. So when I got there, I had good people, but they'd never been in a knife fight where every day you have to win your business. They were in a business where they had no competitor and they were doing great innovative things, but in the construct of their own time and their own cycle, right? And, you know, they thought it was good that they would come out with a software release every year because that gave them time to battle test it uh, and make sure it ran, you know, quite, quite properly. So the rules changed. The organization, you know, didn't change, you know, that quickly. And, you know, when you think about all companies and all industries, it's almost impossible for the company to change that quickly. The culture had to be blown up. And I knew that, you know, and I changed that basically by eight o'clock the first day. <laughs> so, well, because, you know, in the book, I, I talk about it, but, you know, I knew going in that people wanted to have a discussion about, you know, I, I they wanted to tell me a million stories about how NASDAQ did, did things for the last 25 years. I didn't have time to listen to any of those stories. So when you then come in and you then remove, you know, three of the top people before eight o'clock, all those discussions disappeared. Nobody wanted to debate with me, right? They just wanted to kind of get a sense, okay, what do we need to go forward here? Right? So now I was dictating where we're going to be. And I just did not want to waste a minute with any internal discussion. I knew I had limited time. I knew I had to move quickly. And, you know, obviously some of the internal discussion would have been helpful because I'm sure I made mistakes, but the greater good was to just get on with it. Right. 
Yeah, I know you said that in your book is that when you came in, you had your, your doubts or you even questioned, is this already too late? Yeah, because technology can't change that quickly. And I remember when I went to an interview with the board, I said, you know, in terms of senior management, to me, you know, I'll get the right people in place and I don't fear having to move somebody who's been around a while. But I said it would be quite convenient if the CIO was the right person because that's going to set me back a number of months. And Steve Randage was the right person. But even with the right person, we're saying, okay, what do I have on the shelf, right? I have this tandem-based technology running the core system. We change it every year. I, you know, Baron, the cover was bare. We had no development projects. We had a system in Europe, NASDAQ Europe, which is based on a Microsoft platform. And we said, okay, we can bet on that. And that's what we started to do. But, you know, that would keep me up at night. And so one, you know, I've never seen Microsoft handle the processing environment that we have today or where we knew the market was going to go to. Obviously, NASDAQ Europe, we're doing a very small number of trades. So it was just, okay, let's bet the company on some technologists I don't know and who have never done anything of this scale, which we started to fund, fund to do that. But, you know, that's a precarious position to be in, right? So all the stuff with the people and getting the org chart right and getting the culture right, I no doubt I could do that, right? There'd be some bloodletting along the way and, and people you know not being unhappy, but I knew how to get there. But I also knew that you want to put in, you know, a system and create heart surgery like that, uh, you know, it's it's difficult. So that that's where that thought came from. I said I, I wish I had six more months to kind of really get the systems right. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Can you give some other examples about the changes that you begin to make almost immediately? I know you kind of described a couple there and you spoke about removing three of the top people before 8 a.m. on the first day, but um, what were some of the other changes you made almost immediately? Well, here's what I'm, I'm, I'm proud of, uh, is that I always believe that every organization has uh, very talented people, all right? And uh, I, when I came there, I hired two external people from the for the senior ranks. One was Chris Cannon, and the other fellow was not named. Uh, and the other fellow, you know, didn't work out. And I had to let him go. I think I cover this in the, in the book. And that actually helped morale in the company because they knew that Bob was not going to show favoritism to his guy. And this guy was just a bad hire that I made. 
So really, Chris was the only external hire. The rest of it were people I identified, led by Adina Friedman. And I said, okay, th- these are talented people. Let's create the right old chart, the right structure, the right responsibility, the right compensation. They will grow with us, right? And so uh, that I'm proud of, right? We, we had a primarily, but not exclusively, but primarily a homegrown management team that, you know, when I left, I just felt so proud of them. And they were just ready to run the ship. And I talk about that at the end of the book, right? I knew I just was not as vital, right? In a certain way, you make yourself, you know, obsolete over time. And that might be a strong word, but I was certainly less vital than it had been early days when, you know, I had people who were, you know, just kind of going through the cycle there. So I certainly, I, I said, I'm going to find the talent here because, like I said, when my external hires, I was 50%. One was an A-plus, Chris Cannon, uh, who's now, you know, the uh, president of uh, Market Access uh, and a phenomenal hire. And the other was a bust, right? So that's kind of what you get when you were external, that, that, that kind of thing. And I think if you go internal, it might take you longer to get the person there, but your hit rate's a lot higher. Okay. So there you're talking about the people. I know another big part of it was the technology and innovation side. Um, and one of the things which uh, really kind of struck me um, when, when going through your book is that you made 45 acquisitions while CEO of NASDAQ. So you were there for 13 years, and during those 13 years, you acquired 45 uh, companies. Can you tell us a little bit about... Um, I don't know, I guess, uh, why you made so many acquisitions and the, the thought behind behind this. Yeah. So uh, there, the acquisitions were in two categories. One company was in the first category, and that was Instanet, where I really had to do it. Uh, we were under existential threat at the time. The other uh, 43 were purely optional. So the first one, as I described, I didn't have technology. I didn't have much time, and I had an unproven team and technology. I said, okay, this is a risk profile that can put us literally out of business. So with Instanet, I was gaining the best technology on the street by far, by far. And then we're getting a substantial amount of market share, which would make us the dominant, uh, or not dominant, but leading liquidity pool for NASDAQ-listed stocks. The one point we talked about, I was concerned of is that if our market share went low, right, certainly that hurt our profitability, but then it made it easier for somebody to call on our listed companies and said, well, NASDAQ's not trading your stocks. Why don't you come list with me, meaning New York Stock Exchange or one of the startups? So I couldn't have that market share at too low a level for too long. Can I just jump in there? Go. What's, what did Instanet do? Well, they had the best technology, so then uh, we replaced all our technology, all the core NASDAQ technology with, it really was what was known as island uh, INET technology, which I'll explain in, in a second. So now I had, you know, when you think about it, I went from relying on the bureaucratic infrastructure of traditional NASDAQ to relying on the upstart entrepreneurial INET technology people who had a whole different way of looking at the world, right? And at that time, in terms of trading, the percent of NASDAQ-listed stocks that traded, uh, you know, probably 22% was traded on INET, uh, instead of INET, and we were down at 12 or 13%. So I more than 100% increased my market share of stocks listed on, on the NASDAQ market. So, absolute home run. And the INET technology really has been copied or uh, stolen by many, many players on the street. And most of the trading firms today have some version of or some heritage tied back to the INET technology. And the book, I talk about the fellow who created it uh, when I went to Staten Island and met him for the first time. So, uh, read that section. It's kind of interesting. So uh, I'll tell you just quickly. So this is like the early 90s, and this is way before NASDAQ. I'm just starting up uh, brass, and I get some lead that somebody's doing a lot of trading in Staten Island. 
And, uh, you know, I was born in Queens, but I'd never actually driven, you know, in the neighborhoods of Staten Island. And so no cell phones. And I'm driving around these rows and rows of block houses, block houses, you know, one after the other. Uh, and they all are identical. And I said, I'm never going to find this place, right? No GPS, no phone, uh, nothing. And I turn down one block and I see a Mercedes, a portion of BMW in the front in this row house neighborhood in Staten Island. I said, I think that's the house. I found it. And literally, they were in the basement, and that was the very start of electronic trading. And from there, they built that platform, which went through so many migrations, and NASDAQ landed up basically owning it and, and relying on it. And I, I like to say to people, I'm the actual pers- only person who paid for the platform because, you know, as I said, others have, you know, as people have infiltrated the industry, they've copied key parts of the architecture. Uh, there. So that deal, I, you know, I, I say I had to do, right? So I had to be relatively price insensitive. Somebody else bought that and if I, or my Microsoft implementation went sideways, then I'm basically out of business, right? So uh, that put me into a different mental state. So that was entirely different than all the other deals. All the other deals, you know, we had optionality uh, to it. And so why do we do other deals? So one, I always say that you have to, one, uh, diversify from strength, never from weakness, never trying to get away from your troubles. So I'd always keep that firmly in mind. Are we where we want to be? And does this, does this add to the mothership? How does this lever the mothership? So that was our guiding light on those type of things. So we'd always go, I call it also really a half Half a bowling pin left to right. Ideally, you go right over the bowling pin you're in or half one left to right. And when you do that, you know, initially you think, okay, and I, I'd get that from the management team, Bob will never be able to really diversify. So you watch, right? Because if you keep going half a bowling pin left to right, it's like the thousand mile march. Over time, you're in a, in a different place, but you've done it uh, from strength. So we, we just, you know, one thing led to another. And I just made sure we were leveraging our strengths uh there so as an example you know once we got our a business solidified in the u.s right on the equity side and that took a couple years and we felt we were able to live and then we said okay what should we do next and then clearly it was a diversification of asset classes and also a diversification of geography so when we talk about the asset classes, the closest one was options. So we built our own options platform. We molded it after our equity platform, and that cost me, you know, X single million dollars to build and to get in that business with our smart people. We learned a lot from that. And then from those learnings, it was only then that I felt comfortable making an acquisition in the options space. So I went from spending, you know, $10 million on internal development to buying the Philadelphia Exchange, which was an options market for $700 million. I would not have done the $700 million, though, without knowing what I learned from the internal development. Mm. Was NASDAQ only doing equities when you started there? Like, were you responsible for introducing these other products, you know, as you said, Definitely. options? And, yeah. you know, you now do futures too, I believe. Yes. Yeah, we were strictly an equities market. Strictly a U.S. equities market, right? That's all we did, right? So like you said, and, and I would get those questions the first two years, and I would say no, right? Right now, i got to get the equities franchise solidified before we do something else. But then, you know, we grew into it, you know, after that. So, you know, I was happy to be strictly U.S. equities, but come 2005, 2006, and we lifted our head up over the parapet and tried to figure out what else to do. Okay. Okay. Bob, just moving on from, you know, the, the turnaround story a little bit, I'd be interested to just ask you a couple of questions about uh, NASDAQ, you know, as a business. One of those questions being on competing with other exchanges. So what influences a company's decision for where to list their stock? Mm-hmm. So first uh, and foremost is where is their headquarters, right? So U.S. companies will tend to list in the U.S. French companies will tend to list in Paris, right? 
All right. Now, exceptions being Israel and China and others. But, you know, obviously, NASDAQ has listing of companies domiciled all over the world. But the concentration of non-U.S. listings are Chinese and Israeli. Uh, so then uh, you get into in the U.S., right, even if a Chinese company trying to list in the U.S. or, you know, a company in the U.S. looking we had to compete with the New York Stock Exchange. So it was a duopoly competition. And it was one that I was not entirely comfortable with for the longest period of time uh, because the level of competition was on softer, uh, to me, quite ephemeral kind of issues, right? So if you... Uh, thought that you wanted to represent yourself as part of the establishment, then you were likely to list with the New York Stock Exchange. If you wanted to be uh, have your brand associated with growth and entrepreneurship, then we had a very strong chance of winning that. If your peers were listed with us, we had a strong chance of winning that. If your peers were listed with NYSE, then we'd have a more difficult point. Uh, and so this was competition absent data. And it was competition that was in the branding world uh, more than anything. And I endeavored to make it about data uh, to show that the trading in our electronic marketplace is better than on a floor-based market. And I think I succeeded in boring many, many people. Uh, <laughs> many people. Because, you know, the listed companies just didn't care that much. They wanted it to be... This emo it was this emotional decision for them. And uh, so that was not my strong suit. We built up a team that was very good at that. And we came to realize that, you know, going public is uh, a situation where you want to get publicity. And what can we do? And so, you know, over the years, we invested more and more in our market site in Times Square when I first came to NASDAQ, it was trying to get our cost in line so we could survive. I said, why are we paying, you know, X amount, you know, tens of millions of dollars to keep this market site going? And initially I thought we should just close it down, which would have been horrific and a horrific mistake. And, you know, and others talked me out of it. And, you know, obviously that's where our brand was and that's what listed companies wanted to be. So the competition uh, is different than uh, what I call reads and feeds, right? So in the transaction business is people would say, okay, the traders and the technologists want to know how many orders per second you can handle, what are your tails in terms of response time if you're getting slow and things like that. And then you go to this other business, which is all soft and I call it, you know, in the clouds kind of competition. That's really interesting how you described at the beginning there about how if a company wanted to be perceived as being an established business, they would uh, list on NYSE, or if they were wanting to be perceived as more of a growth company, they'd um, list on NASDAQ. Do you think that was an intentional branding exercise, or did it just kind of naturally evolve to be that way? I think it more naturally evolved to be that way. Uh, now, you know, back in the day, New York Stock Exchange would not take IPOs. And this is before my time, obviously. And then the companies, when they reach a certain size, would just automatically list on a NYSE when they were able to. And then you had some of the tech companies led by MCI, uh, back in the day, and then Microsoft and Intel, who, you know, came out with NASDAQ, was very satisfied and didn't see any reason to move and liked the fact that we didn't have a floor and it was electronic. So, you know, we got the smaller companies, they grew larger. The, these companies tend to be technology-based, tend to be, you know, entrepreneurial-led, innovation-led, so it kind of led upon itself. And NASDAQ, I think, through the years, did a great job uh, and I just continued the tradition. We did the branding of NASDAQ through our companies, right? So our ads are always featuring the companies that we list on the NASDAQ. So that would be the contributor to the branding. But it just, I think, more than anything, naturally evolved 
Mm, okay. Um, and another question with regard to, you know, NASDAQ as a business, and I guess this maybe applies to uh, any uh, sort of traditional exchange. How is NASDAQ um, affected by the overall market regime? So, you know, does NASDAQ as a business or an exchange as a business do better in a bull market as opposed to a bear market? Or uh, is the business uh, sort of neutral to the overall market regime? Obviously, NASDAQ in 2019 is different than what it was in 2003 or five, right? So one of my missions over, over time, uh, which Adina is doing a great job continuing, is to have us be less dependent on the transactional side of the business. So NASDAQ has so many, you know, a hundred different exchanges on our systems, scores of broker dealers who pay us kind of on a recurring revenue basis. But the transactional business, right, in the equities on a global basis, uh, will do better on a sustained bull market. But our highest volume days will be on uh, market downward market break days. That makes sense. So when the market is down 500 points or 1,000 points, that's when we see the single greatest volume. But then you know that's a temporary high and the hangover is coming. Because then as you get into the recessionary times after these market breaks, the volume gets very low. So when the market is rising, right, we'll have good volume, good to very good volume, and sometimes great volume. Uh, when the market is crashing, we'll have the best volume ever, right? And we experienced that back in 2007, 2008, where the volume was just going through the roof. But not, you know, we knew it was going to be ugly afterwards. Exchange fees, is that the greatest source of revenue for NASDAQ? Or does it come from uh, other streams now? Okay, so it depends on the time, right? So NASDAQ is a fully diversified global company today. But traditional exchange, right? When I got to NASDAQ, there are basically four streams of revenue. One is the annual listing fee for our listed companies. They, they would pay us. And they pay, when they have the IPO, an initial listing fee, and then an annual listing fee after that. Those fees were not large, but you had 3,000 listed companies, so it was a, you know, uh, a nice uh, cash cow. Uh, you have uh, the fees of trading in the market, and that was under severe threat uh, and is a fraction of what it used to be, right? So if you're buying or selling stock in the market, the direct participants pay us a fee, right? Uh, and that was one way. Uh, third source of revenue uh, is market data. So the trends, the last sale activity and the current bid offer spread, you know, the exchanges mono, uh, monetize that. And so when you're looking at your Bloomberg terminal, your, your Refinitiv terminal, you know, that their people are paying us to consume that data. And what was probably most important to us in the early days, which was not traditional exchange, was we had an index business, which we've grown quite dramatically. And that was the NASDAQ 100. So if you created an ETF on the NASDAQ 100, that was the only product we have. Now we have a lot of products. Then, you know, you would get a fee uh, when the ETF was trading, you know, for being the sponsor and then obviously managing the NASDAQ 100 index. Those were our four lines of business. So... When I got there, uh, the listing revenue was dead because there were no IPOs. Transaction revenue was declining every day as we lost market share, plus volume was low. No IPO, low volume. So you had kind of a double whammy. Shrinking pie, and losing, you're losing share, and then shrinking pie. Not the most fun. Uh, the market data revenue was steady and good cash flow, and the uh, index revenue, ETF revenue, was uh uh, steady and good cash flow. So those two businesses kept ourselves, you know, in business until we sorted out the uh, first and the second. The transaction business, you know, you know, was the most important to us. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting to hear about that actually, because I, I presume probably a lot of people uh, who aren't sort of too invested in sort of market structure and that sort of thing perhaps don't 
fully grasp how diversified an exchange business can be. Right. Let me just ask you one last question, Bob, because I know um, you've got to shoot off shortly. Obviously, you've been uh, very successful uh, in your role as the CEO of NASDAQ, um, which uh, you know, you're no longer there. You left, when was it, 2016? 17. 17. Obviously, you've been a great leader. Are there any last words or lessons you would like to share um, that perhaps other people in leadership positions or someone who's managing a team or running a group um, can learn from your successes and failures? Well, I I would say this. Uh, One, I've seen more people shortchange their careers, careers by working too hard rather than, than working not hard enough, right? So I've dealt with type A people who want to be hyper successful. So I, I've said more times than not, you know, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Now, at times you will have to sprint, right? But you can't sprint forever. Right? You'll, you'll burn out, right? So the people who are... uh not driven, you know, weren't getting in, into my office because you know, they hadn't reached that level of success. So, you know, to a certain level, it kind of flips, right? So you're lower level person, you're trying to find, you know, the people are motivated. Now you found those people are motivated, but how do they grow their careers and grow the enterprise over time? And clearly in a public company setting where you get your report card every quarter and you're under pressure, you can then make short-term decisions and also short-term your career. Uh, now, also what I said, which is not in conflict, but it might sound like it is, I would say that if you expect a work-life balance, uh, you will be sadly disappointed uh, because for you to obtain you know, the higher levels of achievement in a corporate setting, there is no such thing as a work-life balance. The work will dominate, you know, hard stop. Now, your goal would be to have an integrated life, right? Because you do need to have fault, I, I believe. And certainly the fact that I had a, you know, successful marriage and three great kids, uh, you know, I, I think contributed to my success in a major way there. So you have to seek to have an integrated life, but the work is going to not, it won't be balanced. So uh, I, I think that's just un, unrealistic there. So how did you manage that aspect of it? Well, you have to, you have to marry the right person, certainly. Yes, and <laughs> you know, there's just part of part of the sacrifices you you have to make. But then, you know, there's other things you can do uh, that obviously help with the integration. And I would uh, resist business dinners as much as possible, only because I knew if I didn't, I'd be going out every night. And two is, I would say if I'm the person doing the selling that I want to be at the dinner, but I never want to be at the dinner where somebody uh, is selling to me. And so if you think about that, then the whole world would grind to a stop. Right. Uh, but you know, that, that, that minimized uh, that. And then uh, I'd also make sure my trips were very short. And so I was not the guy to do a, a 10 day trip because uh you know, if you take a day trip, then the family doesn't notice it, right? You've gone one night, uh, the family doesn't hardly notice it. You've gone two nights, they notice it a bit. You've gone four or five nights, then it's really kind of a, a real impact on the family. So I would much rather put myself through the hell of, you know, being on too many airplane trips to get home uh, more frequently. So I, I always did that. I would rarely go, you know, for more than a night or two. And even... You know, many times I remember when dealing with LSC, I did a number of day trips to London and back, or just you know, or do one night that that kind of thing. So you know, there's things you can do to uh, you know integrate your life better, uh, and so you, you worked on that. And then obviously with modern communication technology, it's just so much easier than it was in 2003 because you can be texting with your kids all day and you kind of feel like you're together so that that you know that probably makes it a little easier now than it uh did there the other thing i i say to people which i think was in the book is that you know i had many people uh come to me and said 
you know, how do you get to be successful? And part of that was, you know, I wasn't on a natural career path uh, to get to where I did. And I would meet all these people that all they could think about was the next step. And I said, wow, I was never quite that way. And I was trying to relate to it. And so I came up with the advice that you have to make sure that you are in a job that you love, right? And love doesn't mean that you wake up Monday morning and say, I can't wait to get to work. But a, a thing that you have passion for and you want to do well with, uh, and you're just happy to come to work to do that. And if you have that kind of situation, then you'll do that job well, and your career will take care of itself. People will recognize that. And I just say that if you're wasting a day on doing something that you don't love, uh, then your life is finite. Why, why would you do that? And then, uh, it also will reveal itself that, you know, you're not, uh, not really loving it. You're just kind of, uh, not punching the clock, but just putting your time in. So you should never get in a situation when you're putting your time in, right? So I, I think about my career progression. Uh, I just did things that really were very interesting to me. And I never had a career plan that I had to be the CEO of this or that uh, kind of thing. And I, I think it has served me well that way. Yeah, I love that. That's that's really uh, some some great tips you've shared there. And, you know, throughout your book, uh, Market Mover, you have uh, sort of some bullet point, like a bit of a recap at the end of each chapter with additional, you know, lessons that you've learned at sort of various stages of, of your journey. So uh, that's really cool. If someone wants to find your book, Robert, I guess I'm speaking to the listeners here. You can go to chatwithtraders.com slash market mover and I'll set that link up so that it goes straight to Bob's book on Amazon, which is, as I mentioned, titled Market Mover. Um, When does that book come out, Bob? Uh, It comes out uh, a week from tomorrow. Oh, okay. Very soon. Yeah. Yeah, very soon. Well, this episode will probably be released as your book is released. So that'll be available when, when someone's listening to this right now. Great. Love it. Cool. Well, it was absolute honor speaking to you, Bob. Um, very grateful for your time. Thanks a lot for doing this. Keep the entrepreneurial flame going. I love it. <laughs> Thanks very much. Right. Take care. Bye. Talk to you soon. Thank you. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.